This is the second in our series, This Is My Son, Listen to Him. Uh, And in the first part of that series where we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6 and 7. Last week we saw the Beatitudes and we we also saw that uh, this uh, is not really a sermon as such. It is a, a covenant declaration. Uh, Jesus is the new and better Moses uh, who comes uh, and stands on the mountain uh, like Moses, or rather Moses is like him. He stands on the mountain uh, and he uh, proclaims uh, the covenant that God has made with his people. Uh, and he comes not just as the, uh, the prophet that's like Moses, uh, he comes as the one who will uh, fulfill the covenant himself. Uh, verse 11 and 12 uh, of this uh, sermon uh, that we're up to today, uh, verse 11 and 12 have been called by some the ninth beatitude. And uh, they're often recorded, uh, in, they're often re- included, I should say, in uh, the reading of the beatitudes. In fact, when I Uh, had originally planned this series, I had included uh, these two verses in last week's passage until uh, I looked closer and saw that it actually fits better with this week's passage. Of course, Jesus didn't have numbers, verse numbers and chapter breaks in his sermon, but there is a a clear structure to his sermon. And as we we saw last week, uh, it's a structure that follows the same structure as the Lord's Prayer. It matches the seven articles of that prayer. Now these verses, verses 11 and 12, they are a beatitude because they begin with, the, like the others, with the words, blessed are. And in that sense, they're, they're still in the flow of the covenant blessings that the Lord gives to his covenant children. But he's, he's making a segue into this next section, the section that corresponds uh, in the Lord's Prayer to hallowed be your name. The Beatitudes express the the nature of God's covenant fatherhood. The I will walk among you and be your God part of the covenant promise. Well, this section expresses the and you will be my people, part of the promise. How Israel, by being set apart from the nations as God's holy people, will display and declare the holiness of their God to the nations. Uh, these, uh, these verses are, in a sense, their mission statement. How they are to understand the purpose of their calling. What the Lord aimed to accomplish through them as his people. This shift in focus is marked by the move from the third person, blessed are those, to the second person, blessed are you. The the Beatitudes are general principles that apply to anyone in a covenant relationship with God, but at this point we could imagine Jesus Uh, looking his disciples in the eye and the the people in the crowd in the eye and pointing to them as if to say, 
I'm talking to you. This means you. Don't you realise that I've been describing you and these covenant blessings, they have serious implications for you. Now in a moment, Jesus uh, will use two Old Testament images that describe what it means for Israel as God's holy people to see their father's name honoured as holy. But first, he sets them in this context, verses 11 and 12, of persecution. Now, it's one thing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, that we saw in the eighth beatitude, for acting righteously. You you don't even need to be a Christian or even to be religious to be criticised for doing what is right or for pointing out injustice in society. But Israel were to be known not just for their righteous deeds and their just laws. They were also to be known as the people who had the Lord as their God. And the nations around them were to marvel not just at their just laws, but at the goodness of the God who had given them these laws. The persecution uh, described in this beatitude is on my account. And I think that's it's a reference to something uh, bigger than just being a follower of Jesus. It, it's not a, a special application to Christians that Matthew inserted at this point. Remember, this is a reaffirmation of the covenant that God made through Moses with Israel at Mount Sinai. Jesus is speaking here as the Lord, the Lord of the covenant. These are the words of Yahweh himself, not merely because Jesus is a prophet like Moses and Yahweh is speaking through him. He is literally Yahweh in the flesh. Now, persecution of God's people isn't something that started in the New Testament from the very beginning of their history. From when they were slaves in Egypt, they faced the opposition, the hostility, the rage of the nations who sought not just to destroy them as a people, but to overthrow Yahweh, their God. In the ancient world, people understood very clearly that as they went to war with each other, their gods were going to war with each other. So the reason why the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, over and over again would give his reason for the defeat of Israel's enemies as that they may know that I am the Lord. Their victory over their enemies wasn't just Israel's victory over this nation. It was Yahweh's victory over the the gods of the other nations. So Israel knew right from the start that if they were to be God's holy people set apart for the purpose of making his holiness known in the whole earth, they would be persecuted by all the nations. God's enemies would become their enemies. People's hostility towards God 
would be directed towards the people who bore his name. Now the Jews of Jesus' day knew this all too well. They were groaning under the iron fist of Rome. Rome who demanded allegiance to Caesar alone. And and with allegiance to Caesar came a loyalty to the gods of Rome. So both Jesus' original hearers and the original readers of Matthew's Gospel, uh, written about 30 years later, would have immediately identified with these words. Now, Jesus gives two reasons to rejoice and be glad in the midst of this persecution. And they're, they're the same reasons for us today to rejoice and be glad if and when we face opposition for bearing the name of Christ. Firstly, we're told that our reward is great in heaven. Now, this isn't, as we might immediately assume, an assurance that when we die and go to heaven, there will be a reward waiting for us there to make up for what we suffer on earth. Heaven is a word that the Jews would often use in the place of God. That they wanted to avoid the risk of using his name in vain. So they would uh, replace the word, the name of God with, with other images that represented him. So that's why in the Gospel of Matthew, which was written for a Jewish audience, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven. Whereas in Luke, which was written for Gentiles, who didn't have that issue with using the name of God, Jesus says the kingdom of God. So when we come across this word heaven, we shouldn't think of a place, but of a person, God himself. Jesus is essentially saying here, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in God. It's in God himself that we find our reward, our joy, our hope. Even if our persecutors take away everything we have in this world, even our lives, they will never be able to take away our God. And if if and when we lose all things in this world for the sake of knowing Christ, well, that will just serve to make us love and treasure him all the more. Secondly, uh, Jesus tells us that so they persecuted the prophets before us. We stand within a noble lineage of prophets who faithfully spoke the word of God in the face of opposition and humiliation and death. When wicked people opposed them, that was actually a sign that they were speaking the truth. On another occasion when Jesus was teaching uh, this same material uh, in the Gospel of Luke, uh, his sermon there is slightly different in structure and he follows the Beatitudes with a list of woes. Uh, If you are familiar with the Old Testament covenant, when the covenant was given, there were the blessings that would come with obedience to the covenant but then there were also the curses, the woes that would come 
if they were to be disobedient to the covenant. So there's this list of woes and one of these is, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So when we speak the truth, uh, both the truth of righteousness and the truth of the gospel and and we face opposition, we need to remember that we, we stand alongside people like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Elijah and John the Baptist and with all the heroes of the faith who knew that their reward was not in this world but in God himself. Now all of this, this context is is part of being God's holy people living in an unholy world, declaring that our God alone is the Holy One. And as I said, Jesus is setting the context that we need to be reminded of as we hear the, the great mission statement of verses 13 to 16. Uh, We see two images there, Uh, and both of these images, salt and light, are covenantal images. Firstly, he says, you are the salt of the earth. What did Jesus mean by using this image of salt? Uh, Now, unlike the image of light, he doesn't actually give any explanation of what he means. And this has uh, led to various interpretations of salt based on uh, what we can learn about how ancient people uh, sourced their salt uh, or how salt was used in the household. Uh, For example, it's been suggested that just as salt adds flavour to food, Christians are to add flavour to the culture in which we live. Uh, I'm not convinced If we really want to know what Jesus meant, our first port of call to understand what he's saying should be his first port of call, the scriptures. So here's uh, some of the references to salt in the Old Testament. Uh, Leviticus 2.13 You shall season all of your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Ezekiel 43.24 You shall present them before the Lord and the priests shall sprinkle salt on them and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. Numbers 18.19 As the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual Jew. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. 2 Chronicles 13.5 Ought you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. And uh, Ezra 6, 9, uh, whatever is needed, bulls, rams or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require, 
let that be given to them day and by day without fail. It's simply a list of provisions that needed to be made for the temple that was being rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, do you see the common thread running through these passages? The salt here isn't household salt used for cooking or preserving. This is salt that was used in the temple. And this salt had to be sprinkled on every offering before it was given. This salt was known as the salt of the covenant. See, salt was commonly used in ancient covenant-making ceremonies. If two people entered into an agreement, they would both, as part of the ritual, they would both eat salt as a way of binding their agreement. Now, exactly why salt was used in this way, we can't be 100% sure. It may have been its enduring and preserving qualities that were a sign of the permanency of the covenant agreement. Regardless of the reason, we know for sure that salt was an image of the covenant. Jesus' use of this image would immediately have made his listeners think of the salt sprinkled offerings being made in the temple, probably as Jesus spoke, how these offerings secured the forgiveness of their sins and how they were an ongoing, repeated confirmation of God's covenant with them. So what the temple salt was for them, Jesus is saying, they are to be for the people of the whole earth. You are the salt of the earth. The blessings that they knew as covenant children were supposed to flow through them to all of the families and the nations of the earth, in keeping with God's covenant with Abraham, that uh, his descendants will be the means by which God would bless all nations. The second image is uh, you are the light of the world. And this imagery of light is really another way of saying the same thing. Uh, He's taking these words uh, from Isaiah chapter 42. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. See Now see how uh, light for the nations is parallel to a covenant for the people. Light symbolises covenant. Now how were Israel to be a covenant for the people? Well, by being a priestly people through whom people of all nations could be brought into the covenant, into the relationship with the Lord that they themselves had. See how the beauty of God's grace is is apparent in these two images. Israel were God's holy people, set apart from the 
the raging hostile nations who sat in darkness with the express purpose of being the salt and light of the covenant to these very people who were wanting to destroy both them and their God. This is, this is God's great plan for loving his enemies, for doing good to those who persecute him. The very ones that the nations of the world reject and despise, the Israelites, will be the means of the blessing of his covenant to come to those very same nations. Now, embedded in this reminder of Israel's mission is a solemn warning. Verse 13, if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, the implied answer to this question, how shall its saltiness be restored, is it can't. Because salt that isn't salty is no longer salt. This is the danger that Israel was facing at that very moment. Had they so lost sight of their mission to be a covenant for the people that their place within the covenant is about to come to an end? Are they facing the withdrawal of the covenant blessings because they considered them to be exclusively for them and not for anyone else? This isn't just a reminder of the covenant, it's a wake-up call. It's a warning that they were on the verge of a judgment even greater than and more devastating than, than any of the judgments of God that they'd faced in the past. A judgment of being cast out by God to be trampled on by the very people that they were supposed to bless. But here's the good news, the gospel, the gospel that comes in the face of this solemn warning of judgment. If we look at the wider context of that Isaiah passage, Isaiah 42, from which Jesus draws this light imagery, we see that the Lord was speaking there not so much uh, specifically about the nation of Israel, although it can all be said of them, but he's speaking to someone whom he calls my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. Now Israel was called to be this servant as a, as a nation, but they failed in their mandate. That's the story of the Old Testament. Instead of showing forth God's holiness, they brought his name into disrepute among the nations through their idolatry and their wickedness. And so Isaiah prophesied the coming of this servant, the one man who would be the only remaining faithful covenant keeper, the one who would keep its requirements and would fulfil the mission statement of Israel on their behalf. 
That's why Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus, the Lord's servant, whom the Lord upholds, in whom uh, his delight is, uh, this servant is now here. He's standing on the mountain, reaffirming the covenant which he came to fulfil. danger that they face at this time is that if they reject him, they will lose their saltiness. Their light will be extinguished as if it's been put under a basket. If they are to keep on being the light of the world and the salt of the earth, they must receive him who is the true light that brings light to all people. But not only would this servant keep the covenant on their behalf, he would also bear the wrath of God that they deserve for all of their covenant breaking. Isaiah 53 says, My servant was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the crossroads moment for Israel. Will they receive Jesus as their Messiah and no blessing? Or will they reject him and be cast out? Well, what does all this mean for us today as the church? Well, we are the continuation of Israel. There's a continuous unbroken thread connecting the Old Testament saints and the New Testament saints. We are one with all the Israelites who lived by faith before Jesus and those who received Jesus and believed in him when he came. See, Christianity isn't a breakaway from Judaism. We, we stand, as we saw, we, we stand in the line of the prophets and the saints that go right back even as far as Abel. It was the Jews who rejected their Messiah, Jesus, who hid their eyes from the light, they're the ones who broke away and became the unsalty salt. They relinquished their right to be called God's covenant people. So now as the church, we carry on the mission statements of the covenant, the, the mission to be the salt of the earth, and the light of the world. When we pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, we're praying that the holiness of the Father's name might be displayed and declared 
by us. Take a look at this command to believers in Colossians 4. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. See how our speech is to be seasoned with salt, which means, as he says, it it should always be gracious. And the context here is walking in wisdom toward outsiders. That's the parallel to Israel as a nation and how they were to relate to the outsiders, the, the nations around them. This isn't an instruction on how to relate to one another in the church, but how we as Christians are to relate to non-Christians. So why are we to be seasoned with salt? He says it's so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Well, what is it that we're answering? Well, anything from people's genuine questions about our faith, right through to what Jesus is speaking about, reviling, persecution, false accusations. If our answers are to be seasoned with covenant salt, it means we are to speak covenantally, or in other words, always with the aim of calling people into a covenant relationship with God. When people come maybe with objections to the gospel. Our aim shouldn't be to to prove that we're right and they're wrong. When, uh, when people come with reviling and persecutions, our aim shouldn't be to get back at them, to retaliate. When people falsely accuse us, our aim shouldn't be to rise up and defend our honour. When, when people come endorsing and maybe even celebrating immorality, our aim shouldn't be to show that they're bad and we're good. None of that is about the covenant. Instead, we are to speak words of grace, the grace of God that we know in Jesus Christ. Well, what about our works? Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Our good works are not the light. If you look at what he says there, it's the light that shines on our good works and reveals them so that people may see what they are. Here's what Jesus said in John 3. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. 
The light is the light of the gospel, the light of Jesus Christ. See, we are called to speak the gospel of grace, the gospel that tells us that we cannot and never will be saved by our good works, but only by grace through faith in Jesus. And any good works that we do do are only those that have been prepared in advance for us to walk in anyway. Now, when we do this, the, the gospel will then shine light on our works and people will realise that we don't do them because we're good people, but because we are covenant children of the Father. And he's the one who's doing the works through us. And so Jesus said, they will glorify your Father in heaven as opposed to glorifying us. So we don't, we don't draw attention to our works as if we want people to, uh, to approve of us or accept us or, or even to think that somehow by doing good things to people will somehow um, convince them to believe. No, we, uh, we proclaim the gospel so it can be seen very clearly that any good that we do is not something we take credit for. Uh, all glory goes to the Father who's brought us in to be his covenant children. So see how praying, Father, hallowed be your name, is at the same time praying that we will be holy just as he is holy. We're praying that our holiness will be such that we are so distinctly different to the world that the world will look at us and will ridicule us and revile us because it'll be like having a, a bright light shone in their eyes. But our holiness should also be such that the beauty and the glory of Christ, the grace of the Father in his Son, Jesus Christ, is so compelling, so, so, uh, so beautiful, so attractive that people are drawn out of their darkness to come into the light of Christ, to know forgiveness and life in his name. 